It's the Code St. Luke podcast, where you'll hear interesting topics and people brought together through the Code St. Luke Public Library. Hi, everyone. This is Stephen Tomlinson of the Code St. Luke Public Library. And today I will be talking not about a movie, but about a TV show, Star Trek, in its first incarnation on television almost 55 years ago. Now, our experience of television in the 1960s was very different from what it is today. In the year 2021, which sounds like a Star Trek year if there ever was one. Remember, of course, the TV show is set hundreds of, hundreds of years in the future. So in 1966, when Star Trek debuted, the very idea of living in the year 2021 would have seemed impossibly futuristic. And yet here we are, where televisions function much like computers or as a means of streaming endless amounts of content available over the internet and at our leisure. But in 1966, watching TV was a very different kind of activity. You scheduled time for it. And it was likely that you just turned it on for specific shows. In the same way that people used to treat radio before TV itself came along. For example, on Thursday, September 8th, 1966, at 8.30 p.m., TV audiences had only a very few choices. Today, we have an abundance of choice, too much choice. But at that time, on September 8th, 1966, at 8.30 p.m., you could choose between the sitcoms Bewitched, or My Three, Sh- Three Sons, excuse me, or this strange brand new science fiction series called Star Trek. Guess what? Most people picked Bewitched. Now, famously described by Gene Roddenberry, its visionary creator, as wagon train to the stars, Star Trek was greeted by audiences and critics on that day, September 8th, 1966, with a mixture of enthusiasm and disdain. It would run for three seasons only before eventually being cancelled in 1969, by which time enough episodes, 79 of them, had been produced to ensure an afterlife in global syndication during the decade of the 1970s. Now, no one, of course, could have predicted that Thursday night in September 66 that Star Trek would go on over the course of more than 50 years to become one of the most beloved pop culture franchises in history. But it did. It most certainly did. And what I'll be talking about here today is the cultural impact of this franchise in its original incarnation upon the world. Now, at first glance, what would have caught your eye immediately about Star Trek was its striking use of color. That is, if you had been fortunate enough to live in a household that owned a color TV in 1966, which were still fairly unusual. But if you had been lucky enough to have had access to a color TV, among the first things you'd likely have noticed 
was the vivid use of color, especially in the sleek, eye-popping costuming of the characters. I mean, as generations of fans would come to know, the red uniforms signify those of an engineering or communications rank, while the blue uniforms represented the science and medical branch, and the green and yellow uniforms, they signified command level positions. And so successful, right from the start, had that look been that even today, in its various offshoots, Star Trek costuming is not so very different. Star Trek, of course, was not the only TV show to debut in September of 1966. And traditionally, um, on the American television networks, that was the month that most new shows started. And uh, among those shows were That Girl with Marlo Thomas, which debuted on the very same day as Star Trek. But uh, among other series that debuted in September of 66 were Mission Impossible. In fact, um, Leonard Nimoy, of course, one of the principal uh, stars of Star Trek, he would later uh, become an addition to the cast of Mission Impossible after the cancellation of Star Trek in 1969. But there was also the Canadian, popular Canadian series of the time called Vojek with John Vernon, the actor John Vernon, which also debuted that month. But not just those shows. There was also The Green Hornet and The Monkees, both very popular. And all of these shows, not just Star Trek, all of them, they made use of bright, vivid color to maximize the experience of this new innovation of color TV, whether or not your family had access to one. But here's, here's the thing, really. The biggest difference between most of those other shows and Star Trek itself is that while they were meant to be distractions from reality, I mean, the intent of the mostly escapist sitcoms of the era, for example, Star Trek was something intended to be very different, entertaining to be sure, but it also insisted that its audience engage with the world around it, to think critically about the world. So it was also meant to appeal to the mind, something very, <laughs> something very unusual for a television show, either today or 55 years ago. But by the time Star Trek went off the air in June of 1969, just a month before space travel had become a reality and 530 million people had watched Neil Armstrong land on the moon, Star Trek had sunk to the bottom of the Nielsen ratings. Despite a core constituency of loyal supporters found among college kids, sci-fi nerds, and general kooks who took the show far more seriously than those fans of, say, the Hollywood Squares. That Star Trek made it onto television at all is really something of a marvel, maybe a miracle even. And perhaps that it had lasted three seasons is 
nothing short of incredible. It was, for its time, relatively expensive to produce. And it had a cast filled with backstage drama queens. Montreal's own William Shatner, <laughs> foremost among them. I hope he's not listening. And most problematic of all for television networks in that or any era, it was much smarter than everything else on the airwaves. Sure, it had its scantily clad alien hotties, you know, its actors in monster suits with visible zippers and, you know, brain-like creatures living in what appeared to be grocery store milk cases. But it took space travel and, even more importantly, the human condition very seriously. It was ambitious to that extent. Not to make money, necessarily. Not to become a, what we would call today a pop culture phenomenon. It wanted to lead its audience, not only into brave new worlds, extraterrestrially, but into the brave new worlds of the mind, into understanding the world around us, and to change it for the better. That was really at the forefront of what Star Trek set out to do. All in all, not your typical TV show. So it's ironic to recall as various versions of Star Trek became more and more over the decades captivated by the special effects at their maker's command that one of the show's original imperatives back in 1966 was that it was not to be based on gadgetry. Or so said a production booklet of the time, but on, and I quote here, the human drama resulting from the concentrated excitement of man's newfound experience of space. Quote, unquote. Now, as more and more people discovered Star Trek after it went off the air in 1969, as I, in fact, did as a 13-year-old boy confined to a, to a hospital bed for a week in the summer of 1976 with a case of uh, acute appendicitis, the show, though no new episodes were being created, gradually established its now legendary cult status throughout the decade of the 1970s. And as I said, I became a huge fan in the middle of that decade, as would countless millions in subsequent years. But Star Trek, in becoming so popular, after its uh, cancellation in 1969, it really began to write the rule book for what is now today referred to as fandom. That realm occupied by those of us who devote an above-average amount of time to our pop culture obsessions. And anyone who's ever watched the contemporary sitcom The Big Bang Theory will know what I'm talking about here. 
trackies. That was the term used to describe those captivated in their fandom by Star Trek Trekkies. They have brought to the TV series an almost Talmudic level of study and regard for the Star Trek universe. They parse every line of dialogue. I am myself not so much a fan as I was back in the 1970s. Um, but more than ever, it, it remains incredibly popular. And fans, as I said, they parse every line of dialogue. They analyze every metaphorical political situation as if reading a religious text. And not surprisingly, Trekkies were the first to extend their fandom into what is also called today this very contemporary term of fan fiction or an elaboration of the canonical Star Trek universe. <laughs> this is what I mean by this near uh, Talmudic level of, uh, of, uh, of regard. Um, Star Trek fans invented the idea of fan conventions, like, you know, those of Comic-Con today, which are so enormously popular and influential. Um, and movies like The Avengers, The Dark Knight Rises, and the recent iteration of Star Wars. I mean, Hollywood's biggest movies of today, they are themselves directed by superfans, nerds, who grew up on Star Trek and know just, just how important it is to get things right in honor of the fan base for those films. But let's now go back in time, as Star Trek often did itself, uh, this time back to the spring of 1958 and the U.S. President's Science Advisory Committee, which published an explanatory statement on the possible future of space travel. Still then more than 10 years away, right? That white paper was entitled Introduction to Outer Space <laughs> uh, and amid its sobering speculations on the technological challenges ahead, there was a shot of pure idealism, something that JFK would exploit himself uh, when he became president in just a couple of years afterwards. And among the reasons for a national space program, it argued the most important was, and I quote here, the compelling urge of man to explore and to discover the thrust of curiosity that leads men to go where no one has gone before. Now, those words may sound familiar. If we know them today, it is because of Star Trek. When Gene Roddenberry, Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry, took his pilot script to the U.S. TV networks, he lifted the white paper's improbably romantic passage almost verbatim to supply the voiceover introduction to each new episode. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Momentous words. <laughs> Iconic words. Now, Star Trek, in its initial incarnation at least, may not have been obsessed with gadgetry and special effects for their own sake, it was still certainly far-seeing in its depictions of what we today call information technology. 
Um, just think of its uh, communicator, which futuristically prognosticated the invention of the cell phone. And really, when you think about it, much of the wireless communications that we have today. But still, if there is one thing that Star Trek failed to foresee about the phones of the future, that is that humans would become oddly addicted to them. I mean, for example, in the TV show, you never see Starfleet officers texting away while oblivious to the surroundings as we see today with everyone around us on their phones. And then there's that catchphrase, beam me up Scotty, which has made its way into popular culture, like so many other things from Star Trek. In fact, it has permeated popular culture so thoroughly, it has even become a cliche in our own day. But, you know, it comes from the command that Captain Kirk gives his chief engineer, Scotty, when he and those with him need to be transported, or in the jargon of Star Trek, teleported back to the starship from some planet below, or vice versa. Um... Though it has become irrevocably associated with the series and movies, that exact phrase was, did you know, never actually spoken in any Star Trek television episode or film. Though Shatner's character said many variations of it. He never said those exact words. So it is, in effect, beam me up, Scotty, one of the most misquoted lines in movie or television history. Oh, incidentally, James Duan, the actor who played Scotty, he later chose this phrase as the title for his autobiography. Roddenberry himself, his idea to beam characters from starship to planetary surface or from surface to ship, kept the stories moving and the budgets less than what they might have been. But in reality, Scotty won't be beaming you up anytime soon. Physicists say that human teleportation would take centuries of work to become a reality. How about the cloaking device? That term used to describe um, Star Trek technology, which renders spacecraft invisible. I mean, it's when you think about it, it's similar in conception to um, a military stealth technology, right? Oh, incidentally, um, do you know what was the name of NASA's first space shuttle? Do you remember? It was called the Enterprise. So really, even by the late uh, or 1970s, Star Trek had, had really gone far beyond, far beyond what little popularity it had had on network television in the late 1960s. Um, other examples of technological prognostication in Star Trek? Well, consider the tricorder. Remember that? In Spock's hands, this was uh, an instrument used to analyze, record, and store data. Much like a smartphone or, you know, a, or, or, or a tablet with apps. A tricorder, it... Uh, Again, an, another example of Star Trek technology looking to our own future today in the year 2021. And hey, you might be interested to know that the onboard computer for the Apollo spacecraft, 
Then voyaging to the moon back in 1969, it was considered a triumph of miniaturization. But you know, in fact, it weighed 70 pounds and its entire memory could only hold the equivalent of a single iTunes musical music file. How's that for uh, progress in our own day? Certainly one of the most popular aspects of Star Trek technology was the phaser. The phaser, which was, of course, the um, handgun-like laser weapon that uh, was often used in Star Trek episodes. I'm, scientists, they've been developing laser technology since the 1930s, but you might be surprised to learn that they've yet to come up with a practical design for a laser weapon, or such is my understanding, the main holdup being an efficient power source. Other examples of Star Trek technology? Well, there was the Universal Translator. <laughs> this may sound familiar, as it's... Um, Something that uh, we use every day, or many of us do, especially those of us uh, challenged uh, by languages other than our own. And of course, I'm thinking here of Google Translate and how easy it is for us um, to use on our smartphones. But um, the Star Trek world of 1966 certainly kind of looked forward to that in its uh, technology technological use of what it called a universal translator. But of course, its forerunning and conceptualization of advanced real-world technology of today is not the only, or even primary, reason for the show exhibiting such long-lasting cultural resonance. No, not by any means. More important than its conceptualized technology is this idea that runs through just about every episode from the original three-year series. And that is this sense, this feeling of hope, of hopefulness itself. I mean, Star Trek puts forward the idea that we not only survive as a species, but that we learn to survive together with tolerance, acceptance, and altruism at the heart of our endeavors, collectively and otherwise. I mean, at the heart of the show is this open-minded embrace of what is strange, unknown, and otherwise foreign to us. When you think of it, Star Trek fans are by nature very open-minded people. And I think it's because of that sense of hopefulness that lies at the very center of the show. Star Trek in the 1960s also pushed a lot of hot-button topics of the day by dressing them up allegorically, as science fiction has often done. The Cold War, for example? Well, meet the Klingons. Race relations? Well, Star Trek had it TV's first interracial kiss. Women's liberation? Women's rights? Well, maybe not quite so much. Uh, of course, Kirk chased everything in a miniskirt and beehive in those days, but still the show was light years ahead of its time. I mean, consider this. In 1966, a year in which there were what were called race riots throughout the United States, 
And some African Americans were, were, were even still required to use separate washrooms, separate fountains, sit in the back of the bus, etc. Star Trek itself featured an African American among the executive crew aboard the Starship Enterprise. What's more, she was female. And more than 20 years after World War II, and just four years after the Cuban Missile Crisis, audiences witnessed a Japanese helmsman and a Russian navigator piloting the Enterprise in an act of collective endeavor. Now, sure, there was still an all-American white guy in charge, even if the actor playing him is from Montreal, but social change usually benefits from a soft approach, right? If those reluctant to evolve are to go along. Or such was the Star Trek ideology. I mean, Gene Roddenberry even had a catchphrase to encompass the ideology that he brought to Star Trek. And he called it infinite diversity in infinite combinations, or IDIC for short. (laughs) But of course, the unique racial diversity of Star Trek in 1966 did not end there. I mean, elsewhere among the cast of the original, that original series was, of course, a stoical, half-human, half-alien, Mr. Spock, who acted as science officer and became... In effect, the most popular character on the show, much to the chagrin, at least initially, of Star Trek's ostensible star, William Shatner. And, you know, throw in loyal, straight-talking Southern Dr. McCoy and tenacious engineer from Scotland, Scotty, and you have the most diverse cast of characters ever seen on TV, at least up until 1966, and arguably for quite some time to come. In fact, I'm struggling to think of anything quite so uniquely diverse today. Although I'm sure such things exist. And it's this, I think, that has been the key to the longevity of the Star Trek phenomenon. Its promise of a positive future for a species that seems incapable of getting along. And not only incapable of getting along, but of potentially destroying itself. And that was a very real concern in the 1960s, as it is today. Perhaps that's why the original series continues to be so inspiring and so relevant today. I mean, since, in some respects, very little has changed 50 years on. But very optimistically, in the 23rd century of Star Trek, you know, the the timeline in which its stories were set, humans have evolved to the point where all races live and work together and there is no war or strife between them. This futuristic optimism, as it's been called, is especially pronounced in those many time travel episodes from the original series in which the crew of the Enterprise returned to Earth's 20th century with a kind of bemused regard for its backward ways, not unlike really when you think about it, how we might today regard the horrors of the medieval ages. But in Star Trek, 
We instead follow the adventures of the USS Enterprise, part of the United Federation of Planets, an intergalactic organization dedicated to peace, exploration, and science. In this optimism, Star Trek has proved so very influential, inspiring not just the technologically minded, I mean, including scientists, cosmologists, and astronauts, but truly sending a very strong and deep message about social and racial equality, or at least its tangible possibility. Here is an example. This is what Star Trek is telling us. Yes, it's true, the white guys represented by Kirk and McCoy still mostly run things in the original series, but the point is made unmistakably that we are all, broadly speaking, on equal footing. George Takai, one of the original members of that 1966 cast, is himself of Asian descent. Takai and his family had been held in a Japanese-American internment camp during World War II, so making his presence on the bridge of the Enterprise just 20 years later in 1966 must have been especially poignant for both himself and many audience members of the day. Today, he is a prominent gay rights activist. I mentioned it earlier. On November 22, 1968, a few months after the assassination of Martin Luther King, Star Trek featured, between Captain Kirk and Lieutenant Uhura, the first scripted interracial kiss on American television. While the kiss was a minor plot point in the grand scheme of space and exploration of the final frontier, the fact that Uhura was not played by a Caucasian woman was a very unique thing even transgressive. And that kiss nearly didn't make it onto the screen. The studio, in fact, demanded an alternate version of the scene in which the embrace does not take place, but which was sabotaged, much to his credit, I must add, by a deliberately wildly overacting William Shatner. So NBC affiliate stations in the American South simply refused to air the episode. Much to their discredit, of course. Nichelle Nichols, the actress who played Uhura, often tells the story of when she was considering leaving Star Trek to return to music. She met Dr. Martin Luther King at a fundraiser, and he told her that she must not leave the show, because for the first time, we are seen as we should be seen, he said. It is not a black role, but an equal role. I mean, just think about it. At the time, just having a woman on the bridge of a quasi-military vessel was a bit transgressive. But that she was a black woman, well, that was revolutionary. Leonard Nimoy, who passed away a few years ago, he played, of course, the logical, half-human, half-Vulcan Mr. Spock. And he was of a Jewish Orthodox background. His first language, in fact, was Yiddish. William Shatner, too, is Jewish, but, as I understand it, with a much more secular regard for his roots. Now, despite being a civilization, the Vulcan civilization, one that highly regards both reason and logic, the Vulcans of Star Trek are also portrayed as being a spiritual and religious race. And it was Nimoy himself who incorporated an ancient Hebrew priest's blessing called the 
Kohanim into what is today the universally recognized Vulcan salute with accompanying injunction to live long and prosper. So all these years, in fact, everyone has been getting a subliminal Jewish blessing. Hurrah for that. Leonard Nimoy has left us much about his upbringing, including two autobiographies. I learned early on that I was somehow different, he wrote. At age eight, he teared up watching Charles Lawton's 1939 screen portrayal of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, the ultimate outsider, you might say. He said, I carried Quasimodo's haunting image with me from the theater that day. The seed that would become Spock was planted. Now, of course, Spock is the only resident alien amidst the crew of the USS Enterprise. And of course, there is something of a tragic, unreconciled divide in Spock in that he is neither fully human or fully Vulcan. Nimoy has written, I knew what it meant to be part of a minority, in some cases, an outcast minority. I mean, his parents had immigrated from the Ukraine. The place where the half Vulcan could be accepted, he said, was the starship, because it was a meritocracy. And I totally identified with that. Nimoy was sometimes asked whether Judaism was part of the world of Star Trek, and he had a ready answer. He would say, Jewish values can be found in the show's reverence for education, individual dignity, and for a principle called Tikkun Alam, the obligation to repair the world. And with the character of Spock, the answer was perhaps most evident. Also recall the Vulcan nerve pinch. I mean, there was a lot of fighting or hand-to-hand combat on Star Trek, right? But somehow it all seemed to be beneath the evolved character of Mr. Spock himself to hit someone. That's something he just didn't do. Instead, Spock would, with little physical exertion, use a nerve pinch to put Federation enemies out of action. You know, Barack Obama has often been compared to the calm, analytical, and of course, big-eared Mr. Spock. And when Leonard Nimoy passed away, the White House released a statement from the president marking, the then president, marking both his passing and the effect that uh, Nimoy had had on Obama. I loved Spock, he said, before noting Star Trek's optimistic, inclusive vision of humanity's future. And Obama, like Spock, is, of course, of mixed parentage. Like much of the best science fiction, Star Trek is really a comment on the times in which it was made. The show frequently broached contemporary issues allegorically through its presentation of a 23rd century alien world, which would have been difficult, if not impossible, in a traditional TV format, subject to strict censorship. And each episode was often a bit like a morality tale, so much so that you can watch many of those episodes today and say to yourself, oh, that's about the Vietnam War, or, oh, that's about civil rights or racism. I mean, all touchy subjects, even today, or would be in something less than an allegorical context. Also, there's this unmistakable sense of collective endeavor that in a 1960s context might have been subject to accusations of communism, for example, despite the brash all-American individualism exhibited frequently by Shatner's Captain Kirk. 
I mean, the show's creator, Gene Roddenberry, he was deliberately injecting the stories and characters with his liberal values. Values such as the championing of racial acceptance, religious skepticism, and peace among diverse peoples. Fans often speculate that this may have been a result in part of his experience as a bomber pilot during World War II. Unlike most science fiction today, on television and in the movies, the original Star Trek celebrated not the gadgets, the special effects, or cool-looking spacecraft. I mean, they were important, but only to some extent, right? I mean, just consider the Enterprise itself as an example. It always looked a bit run down. I mean, even by the standards of the day and the special effects themselves were, were never that sophisticated and would soon be eclipsed by those um, demonstrated in the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey just a few years later. What Star Trek was much more interested in was the marvelously complex interplay between human intellect and logic with emotion, passion, and feeling. I mean... It was a statement about how far humanity had come, while at the same time reminding us that we're, that we're still much, much further to go. It really was the characters played by William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, and DeForest Kelly as Dr. McCoy, who gave the original series its truly dramatic pulse. I mean, it's remarkable to look back on those episodes, episodes and see just how much talking there is in them. You know, Roddenberry had studied the archetypes of classical Greek drama, and he turned virtually every show via its three principal characters into a dialogue between the limits of rationality, the dangers of hyper-emotionalism, and the importance of achieving a moderating synthesis between the two. That's how highfalutin Star Trek could be in its uh, idealism, its ideas, its conception of the world, and its wish to present a dramatic reality that we could embrace um, at home. But always with a sense of flair, fun, and adventure, of course. However, in the decade following the demise of the original Star Trek, two complementary forces, I think, have worked against uh, Roddenberry's vision one being Hollywood's blockbuster mentality and the technical sophistication displayed by rival franchises like Star Wars, which have tempted filmmakers to strive for a continuously bigger and louder bang for their buck, as it were, rather than the all-too-human values uh, demonstrated in the work of, um, of, of Roddenberry's uh, Star Trek. But also at the same time, and I think this continues to be true, um, on a broader scale, the United States and much of the West in general has simply lost faith with many of the optimistic ideals of the 1960s. And the world, at least to my eyes, is much the poorer for it. Nevertheless, for many of us, Star Trek remains the very embodiment of our collective aspirations, at least for a liberal, mostly secular segment of the population. You know, that idea that we might put aside our differences and look to the stars, you know, head out into the unknown together and welcome others to our side while doing so. That was the dream of this ambitious 
television show that made its debut almost 55 years ago, in which, however flickering, is a dream, I think, that is still with us today. Okay, that's it, folks. I hope you've enjoyed this uh, very personal look at the um, relevance and continuing importance of the original Star Trek TV series. You've been listening to Co-St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson. Please join me next time for more movie and television talk. And remember, if you have any comments or questions, you can best reach me at stomlinson at codesaintluke.org or by means of the library's Facebook page, or even by calling the library at 514-485-6900 and leaving me a message. All the best, happy viewing, and bye-bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Code St. Luke podcast today. We launched the podcast and telephone broadcasting service in March 2020. The idea was to get content from Parks and Recreation and the library into your homes using Zoom, telephone, and podcasts. If you enjoy the podcast, please give it a rating and review at Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. For more information about programs at the library, visit csllibrary.org. For information about the city of Code St. Luke, visit codesaintluke.org. Have a great day.